Good to start. All right. Well, good morning and welcome to Sunday School. Let's pray as we get started. Great God, we are so glad that you are the God of history. You have worked in a mighty way in the past. And Lord, we benefit from our spiritual fathers and mothers from the past. But Lord, we also want to learn from their mistakes. Pray, God, that you would bless this time of instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, we are back this week with our series on church history. This is Church History 101, the early church. Two weeks ago, if you remember when we were last moving through this series, we were talking about early heresies. And when it comes to heresy and the Christian church, the situation is kind of like what the superhero Mr. Incredible says at the beginning of the movie The Incredibles. He says, you know, no matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can't you keep it clean for 10 minutes? Well, the same can be said for Christ's church. The world, the flesh, Satan, they never give up their assault on the truth. So we Christians will always have to do as Jude exhorts us in his book. We must contend for the faith. We must keep contending for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. We can't take a break. We must stand and fight as faithful soldiers until the end. But historically speaking, there came a notable change in the way that Christ's true church contended for the faith starting in the 4th century. And that is because Roman emperors started to get involved in Christian controversies. These emperors called ecumenical or worldwide, empire-wide church councils to help Christians settle doctrinal disputes. In some ways, this new tool, and in one way it's not new, there's a council in the book of Acts that we hear about, but this one is different in that it's empire-wide. In some ways, this new tool for defending and clarifying Christian belief proved extremely helpful and even effective. We still benefit from the meetings and the decisions of these ecumenical church councils today. But in some other ways, this new tool proved limited and at times counterproductive. I want to talk to you today about the seven ecumenical church councils. I know I said last time that we talked about the canon of the Bible today, how that was established, but I'll save that for next week. Focus today just on the councils. Well, I could probably do a Sunday school lesson on each one of these councils. We're going to try to tackle all seven today, and that means we'll have to do it in an overview fashion. These councils start in the 300s and end in the 700s, which means we're going to go outside of our early church time period a little bit. That way we can talk about all these councils together. Each of these councils, aside from the last one, they're going to be articulations about the nature of the Trinity and or the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's examine what these were all about. What specific specific issues were at stake at each council? What was decided? And what were the results? So you see the seven, seven councils there. We start with the Council of Nicaea in 325. Chances are, if you've heard anything about church councils before we began this church history course, you've probably heard about the Council of Nicaea. Unfortunately, however, the Council of Nicaea, somewhat like the whole early church period, it is subject to many falsehoods, half-truths, and misinformation. From the Da Vinci Code to the claims of Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, many people say inaccurate things about Nicaea. They will claim that it's when different Christian doctrines became invented or were unfairly dismissed. Then on the other side... Some people give too much credit to the Council of Nicaea. The Roman Catholic Church says that what happened at Nicaea and these other ecumenical church councils is authoritative and binding on all Christians because it is church tradition. They elevate church tradition to an authority alongside the Bible. The Greek Orthodox Church goes even further, saying that this council, the decision of this council and the other councils, is inspired the same way that the Old Testament and New Testament are inspired. This was God speaking authoritatively through his people. 
that's going too far. But with so much conflicting talk and misinformation about these councils, particularly the Council of Nicaea, we need to find out what really happened. So let's do that. First, the background, the road to Nicaea. In 318, seven years before the council would be convened, a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, named Alexander, was preaching a sermon in which he emphasized the union of Father and Son within the Trinity, both eternal God, yet distinct from one another. This sermon did not sit well with a certain Alexandrian presbyter, or priest, priest is just a shortened form of that term, didn't sit well with a certain priest named Arius, who soon after publicly rejected Alexander's teaching and accused him of Sabellianism. You might remember, what is Sabellianism? Another term for modalism, that there's only one God who takes different masks, sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. Arius accused Alexander of Sabellianism. Arian then taught his own understanding of the father and son's relationship, which was, does anybody know? What is Arianism? Only the father is God. The son is a special, exalted being, but created. He is not God. Like earlier monarchians, and we talked about that uh, sector of heresies, Arius did not accept the biblical tension when it comes to the Trinity, the Trinity, and he clung to a logical explanation of the Father and Son. Arius maintained that the Son was begotten, which means he must have been he must have been born or made. The Son is just an exalted, created being without the eternal existence or substance of the Father. Arius' favorite phrase, his jingle was there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. Arius also made much of the fact that the son subordinates himself to the father in his incarnation, which Arius saw as an expression of inferiority to the father, hence more proof of the logical relationship of father and son. One must be eternal, the other must be created. Now, Arius was a popular preacher, and he converted more and more people to his views. Bishop Alexander then convened a regional synod of Egyptian church leaders, which condemned Arius as a heretic. But this did not stop Arius. Arius had connections with other church leaders in the Roman Empire, and he began to travel. He continued to spread his teaching via preaching and writing. He even wrote songs that contained his theology, and these songs became popular among Christians. Bishop Alexander, a man named Athanasius, who was Alexander's secretary and a deacon, and other Orthodox church leaders consequently engaged in a war of words with Arius and his supporters, each side trying to prove that the other was being unfaithful to the scriptures. But this conflict between church leaders soon became a conflict between church followers. One historian writes, The debate was conducted with the violence of a political convention. Everybody entered into it. Men who met to transact business neglected their bargaining to talk theology. If one said to the baker, How much is the loaf? He would answer, The son is subordinate to the father. If one sent a servant on an errand, he would reply, The son arose out of nothing. Arius put his doctrine into verse to popular tunes, and it was sung and whistled in the streets. The arguments were punctuated with fists and clubs. So this Arian conflict was spreading further and further in the church. And not only were Christians arguing with one another, but some were even attacking and killing each other over this issue. Now this is the situation in the eastern half of the Roman Empire in 324. Now, you might remember, what important geopolitical event also happens in 324, which we've already talked about? This is the year that Constantine defeats his last rival and becomes the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. It had been split between East and West before, but he defeats his last rival emperor and he becomes sole ruler. 
And you can imagine Constantine, who's quasi-convert to Christianity, you can imagine Constantine's reaction to all this theological controversy among Christians. Why are the Christians trying to tear apart my precious new united empire? So like any wise political leader, Constantine knew that this source of instability needed to be dealt with, and he called the first ecumenical church council at Nicaea, a town across from Constantinople in Asia Minor, uh, pretty close by. So on the Turkey side, Constantinople's on the Europe side. Well, Constantine invited the most important bishops of the empire, and even from outside the empire, to come and settle this issue one way or another. Constantine was not going to decide what the issue was. He's just like, you guys got to figure it out, because the empire needs peace. And thus, the Council of Nicaea began in June 325. According to Eusebius of Caesarea, a Christian historian of the time, 318 bishops showed up to the council, along with a number of priests, that is, presbyters, and deacons. In all, there were about 2,000 churchmen in attendance, and from all over the empire. The council lasted 41 days, and mainly consisted of debates around the issue of Arianism, though there were a few other minor topics that were also addressed by the council. Three viewpoints emerged at the council based on three Greek words used to describe the relationship of the Son to the Father. First is the term or the viewpoint of heterousius. Now, hetero is a root that means what? Different. Different, right? Um, heterogeneous versus homogeneous. Hetero would mean different. And usius was a term that referred to substance or essence. So heterousius means different substance, different essence. And this is the starting view, this is the starting point, the platform of Arius and his allies. They said the Son has a different substance or essence from the Father. But this view is immediately rejected by the council as unbiblical. The scriptures show that Christ is not of a different substance than the Father. Second viewpoint, second uh, group, was the homoousius group. And if hetero means different, homo means same. Same substance or essence. The son is of the same substance or essence as the father. Now this is the view of Bishop Alexander, Athanasius, and all Arius's chief opponents. Now, many bishops were uncomfortable with selecting this word to describe the relationship of the son to the father, because homoousius was the term that the Sabellians used to describe their modalistic view of the Trinity. They like to use homoousius to say, oh yeah, the son is the same substance as the father because they're just different masks of the same person. So many bishops were uncomfortable with homoousius as the biblical way to describe the son and the father together. And so they preferred a third term, which was homoousius. Does anybody know what homoi means? Means similar. If hetero is different, homo the same, homoi means similar substance or essence. The son has a similar substance or essence to the father. And this was a preferred term at first because the bishops on guard against Sabellianism thought that you could contain the idea of homoousius while still preserving the biblical distinction between the Father and the Son with homoousius. So, yes, in one sense the Father and Son are the same, but in another sense they're different, so why don't we use the term homoousius? Well, the Arian faction, on seeing that heterousius was a non-starter, that's not going to get anywhere, they took up this third position. They said, yeah, why don't we say homoousius? But the homoousian faction, they saw this third position as a trap. And why would that be? Because the term is too ambiguous. It very readily allows for an Arian point of view to exist within it. And Arianism is heresy. We can't settle for homoousius. And this is what they argued before at the council. Even though homoousius had been used inappropriately by the Sibelians, this 
Homoousius faction argued, it is the only word that can correctly describe the biblical relationship of the son to the father without leaving wiggle room for Arianism. So after intense deliberations, the gathered church leaders finally settled on the conclusion and wrote down a creed, a statement of doctrinal belief based on the scripture, and then voted on it. They decided to take the homoousius viewpoint. They believed that that was the most accurate way to describe what the scripture teaches. And so out of 318 bishops said to be in attendance, 316 voted for the creed, and only two voted against. And Arius, as a priest, didn't get a vote, so that was two other people. Now, Constantine had a limited role at the council of just listening and asking questions, but once the council's creed was decided and approved by vote, he also approved it, he published it officially, and it is known today as the Nicene Creed. Now, this creed would be slightly modified later, so if you've ever read the Nicene Creed, it's going to sound a little bit different than what I'm about to read to you, but here is the original Nicene Creed. Not super long. It says, We believe in one God, the Almighty Maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousius, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven, and he shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Ghost. Just a little bit more. And whosoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that before he was begotten he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature, or subject to change or conversion, all that to say, the Catholic or the universal, that's just what Catholic means, the universal and apostolic church anathematizes them. And what does that mean? What does it mean to anathematize? No, not bring together. It's, uh, it's condemn, but even more strong. It, we, to anathematize means to designate somebody as damned to hell by God. Let that person be damned to hell. Let those false teachers be damned. That's a term actually that comes from the Bible. So, seems like a pretty good outcome. What were the results of the council? Trinitarianism is upheld as orthodox. Praise the Lord. Constantine also, as a result, exiles Arius and Arian bishops from the empire. Doesn't put them to death, but he says, you don't have a place here. You need to go. And a little bit later, Athanasius, who was one of the advocates for the biblical teaching of Trinitarianism, he's soon made a bishop of Alexandria after the previous bishop's death in 326. Also, one minor note, the council also decided when the date for Easter would be. This was one of the other considerations of the council because there was a prevailing supersessionistic view at the time among Christians, which was that the church replaces Israel, and so they kind of wanted to put more distance between the Jews and Christians, and they did not want to celebrate Easter at the same time the Jews celebrated Passover. They wanted to show more of a break, so the bishops decided that Easter, the commemoration of Christ's victorious resurrection, should be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the first day of spring. And it's been that way ever since. So if you've ever been confused about the, when Easter is each year, it's because of the Council of Nicaea. So, sorry about that. But with such a clear articulation of biblical truth and given Constantine's support, that was the end of Arianism. Right? Wrong. Because wait, there's more. Amazingly, just two years after the Council... Constantine was persuaded to reverse his stance on Arianism due to political considerations. And he brought back the exiled Arius, or the exiled Arians, and he exiled Athanasius. And Arianism again started to spread throughout the empire. And many Trinitarian church leaders were browbeaten into accepting Arius' teaching or faced the consequences from the emperor. 
While many conform to the official Arianism promoted by Constantine and the emperors after him, some did not. From exile in the Egyptian desert and other places, Athanasius continued to write and expose Arianism as heresy and Trinitarianism as truth, proving this not by Nicaea's decision or creed, but from the Bible. Athanasius would later be allowed to return to the empire, but then he got exiled again. <laughs> he was exiled a total of five times before he died in 373. He did not live to see Arianism defeated, but he never stopped fighting against it. Indeed, sometimes Athanasius felt like he was the only one opposing Arianism, hence the phrase that was said of him, Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. He was convinced that no matter what anyone said or what was officially sanctioned by the emperor, God's truth was still God's truth and had to be upheld. He was being faithful in that way. But he wasn't the only faithful nonconformist. We don't have time to talk about these other men, but the Cappadocian fathers, and of course I love them because they come from an area that sounds similar to my last name, Cappadocian fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus, they also continue to argue for the Son and the Holy Spirit being God, as taught by the Scriptures. I'll give you a few words from Gregory of Nyssa. This is from his work on the Holy Trinity. He says, They, the Arians, charge us with preaching three gods, and din into the ears of the multitude this slander, which they never rest from maintaining persuasively, then truth fights on our side. We show both publicly to all men and privately to those who will converse with us that we anathematize any man who says that there are three gods and hold him to be not even a Christian. Then as soon as they, the Arians, hear this, they find Sibelius a handy weapon against us. And the plague that he spread is the subject of continual attacks against us. So they kept saying, you teach three gods. Or no, you teach modalism. <laughs> Excuse me. Now they charge us with innovation and frame their complaint against us in this way. They allege that while we confess three persons, we say there is one goodness and one power and one Godhead. And in this assertion, they do not go beyond the truth, for we do say so. But the ground of their complaint is that their custom does not admit this, and Scripture does not support it. What then is our reply? We do not think that it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and rule of sound doctrine. For if customs, traditions, is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom. If they reject this, we are surely not bound to follow theirs. Let the inspired scriptures then be our umpire, and the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine word. So you can hear... Gregory, our distant brother, upholding Trinitarianism, but also commenting on where the authority for orthodoxy comes from. Not from tradition, not even from councils, but from what? The scriptures. Yeah, it's sola scriptura. Now, thankfully, Arianism would eventually give way, but not till the second ecumenical council. In the meantime, God used the Cappadocian fathers and faithful Athanasius to keep the torch of truth burning until the darkness of error was ready to dissipate. And of course, there were others besides them. Now, I've spent a good amount of time talking about Nicaea and its aftermath, but now let's talk about the other councils, and we'll be a little bit briefer with them. In the intervening years between Nicaea and the next council in Constantinople, Arianism got stronger and spread, mostly in the east, not so much in the west. But then certain Arian leaders began to dispute with one another, which means Arianism as a whole became vulnerable. And by this time, there's a new emperor in town, Theodosius I, also known as Theodosius the Great. He was not Arian. Finally, we get one of those. He was from the West, and he was eager to see Trinitarianism restored as Orthodox, because it is. In 380, Theodosius, in conjunction with other rulers in the Roman Empire at the time, published the Edict of Thessalonica, 
essentially declared that all forms of Christianity besides Nicene Trinitarianism were illegal and would be persecuted by the government. Well, that's bad news for Arianism, especially because Arianism really was only strong because it was being propped up politically. Without political support, the movement began to collapse. However, in reaction to Arianism, another view had gained popularity in the church by this time, and that is Apollinarianism. If Arianism stressed that Jesus was human but not fully God, Apollinarianism said that Jesus was God but not fully human. Bishop Apollinaris of Laodicea, he taught that when the Son became human, he did not take upon himself a human soul or mind. Jesus was essentially the body of a man with the soul and mind of God. Whereas Professor Busnitz at Master's Seminary would say, Jesus was like a letter sitting inside an envelope. He was God in a human shell, or God in a bod. Now, is this the biblical view of Christ? No, it's not. Why not? That's right, because he must be fully human. That's what the scriptures teach. He must be fully human to be a sufficient high priest. He must be made like us in every way. He cannot be part human. He must be all the way human. So, Theodosius convened a council in 381, not only to deal with Apollinarianism, but also to emphatically deal with Arianism. At the Council of Constantinople, the Nicene Creed was reaffirmed and expanded, and Apollinarianism was condemned as heresy. The council stated emphatically that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. So the council published a new creed, which is probably the Nicene Creed that you've heard of today. It's really the Niceano-Constantinopolitan Creed, which says the same thing as the Nicene Creed, but also more explicitly affirms the Holy Spirit as being God. I won't read that one to you. You can look it up later. With the Edict of Thessalonica, the Council of Constantinople, and other religious laws enacted by Theodosius, Arianism, and many other 2nd and 3rd century heresies were finished. They began to fade dramatically. So that was a pretty good outcome. Nice, good counsel, good emperor. Praise the Lord. But how to protect against these kinds of errors in the future? It's kind of doctrinal drift. Well, that would be a subject of the next ecumenical council, ecumenical council, about 50 years later. Let's now talk about the Council of Ephesus, 431. By this time, there are two main schools of thought in the Christian sector of the Roman Empire when it comes to interpreting the Bible. There's one school of thought that's mainly centered in Alexandria, Egypt, and another one centered in Antioch, Syria. So you've got these two schools of thought, and they have to do with interpreting the Bible. I'll say much more about this in another class. But for now, know that Alexandria was famous for promoting an allegorical interpretation of the Bible, a more spiritual meaning where Antioch was known for a more literal interpretation of the Bible. We would be more in line with the Antiochian school today. Well, there's continuous rivalry between these schools, and it pretty much went back to the second century. Rivalry between the schools, rivalry between their followers, and one of the battlegrounds became Mary, Jesus' mother. What should we call Mary? Was she the bearer of God, the one who bore and gave birth to God, or the bearer of man, the bearer of the man Jesus? Now, this question was raised not to elevate Mary in worship, but to safeguard the reality of the incarnation. Alexandria, the school of Alexandria, said that Mary ought to be called Theotokos, which means bearer of God, in order to safeguard that Jesus really is God. Arianism, which you might remember from just me saying it a few minutes ago, denied that Jesus was God, and that had originated in Alexandria. So the Alexandrians had reason to want to safeguard this teaching about the divinity of Jesus. Antioch, on the other hand, they said that Mary ought to be called Anthropotokos, which means the bearer of man, in order to safeguard that Jesus was really man. Apollinarianism had recently denied this, 
And in response, the Alexandrians, the Antioch school, argued that God was eternal and therefore could not be born. A man could be born, God could not be born. Why would you say Theotokos? Let's go with Anthropotokos. Then you had Nestorius, who was Bishop of Constantinople, who suggested a third option. Do I have these up there? Oh, yes, I do. Christotokos, which you can guess means bearer of Christ. So we've got Theotokos, Anthropotokos, Christotokos. These are all Greek terms. In Nestorius' opinion, not only would this third option serve as a compromise between the other two schools, but it would also be a term that emphasized that Christ was unique, having two natures, God and man, neither of which were absorbed into the other. Well, the resolution of this theological question of what to call Mary ended up playing out ridiculously. This is not a good moment for the Christian church. Cyril of Alexandria, who is the leader of the Alexandrian faction, accused Nestorius, the bishop of Constantinople, of heresy claiming that Nestorius taught that there were two persons inside Christ with two completely different wills, that the son was basically a schizophrenic. Now, Nestorius, we're actually not sure whether he taught that, but that's what Nestorianism came to mean, that you have like these two separate people inside Jesus. He probably actually didn't teach this, but that's what he was accused of teaching. And Cyril of Alexandria was able to get some other main Christian leaders to side with him and Nestorius was about to be excommunicated if he did not change his views. Well, Nestorius wanted to clear his name, and so he got the emperor at the time to convene a council at Ephesus. Now, we know Ephesus from the Bible. It's on the west coast of Asia Minor. To convene a council of Ephesus at, or in 431. But the council did not go according to plan. First of all, the leaders from Alexandria arrived first, and they started the council without the leaders from Antioch. Those assembled quickly came to a resolution about what to call Mary. Can you guess what their decision was? Theotokos, because it's only the Alexandrians who were there, and that's what they wanted. So they decide that Theotokos is the, is the right term. And secondly, this council dominated by the Alexandrians condemned Nestorius as a, as a heretic. And this would have important unforeseen implications, because later some churches that like Nestorius, where his teaching was popular, they felt like he and his teaching had been unfairly dismissed. And these Christians in the eastern part of the empire, some of them traveled further east, mostly settling in Persia, and they broke from the rest of the churches. They broke from the Roman church. Thus, the Nestorian schism resulted in most churches in Persia, India, and East Asia becoming Nestorian. Now, how much of the Nestorianism that we think of today, these two persons inside Christ, and Christ has got like these two different sides that aren't united. We don't know how much of that they actually embraced, but this was a fundamental schism in the early church because of this one council and the condemnation of Nestorius. Thirdly, when the churchmen from Antioch did arrive, they saw what happened and basically decided to have their own council, at which they condemned Cyril of Alexandria as a heretic. Oh, man, this is just a mess. When the emperor heard of the results of the councils, it's really two, he had Nestorius and Cyril exiled. Though Cyril was allowed to come back after two years. So Ephesus was definitely not the most helpful council. You can see it was very politically charged. What's worse is that oops, soon after the council, different Christians throughout the Roman Empire began to consider Mary, now officially called Theotokos, bearer of God, as a saint worthy of special veneration. It's really after the Council of Ephesus that we see the cult of Mary worship take off. The title meant to protect the reality of the incarnation, unfortunately united with pagan thinking of many nominal Christians coming into the church, and it led to the unbiblical exaltation and even the worship of Mary. So, Ephesus was problematic. But as unhelpful as this ecumenical council was, the next council 20 years later was much better. Let's go to our fourth council, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. At this council, church leaders met to clarify the nature of Christ. 
his humanity and his deity. As you can see, we're having lots of questions about this. We really want to get this nailed down in the early church. And they met to have a council about it in Chalcedon. This is also near Constantinople. And again, we have two sides on this issue separated based on school, school of thought. Antioch versus Alexandria again. On Antioch's side, we have a reappearance of a kind of Nestorianism. They said, Christ has two natures, human and divine, which are totally separate from each other. And they, of course, their opponents came by and said, you're making Christ a schizophrenic. Of course, they didn't use that term, but you're trying to put two people inside Jesus. That's not biblical. But this was Antioch's side. On Alexandria's side, we have Eutychianism that said that Christ has only one nature. It's neither human nor divine. He's a unique mixture of the two, a hybrid. Which of these views is accurate according to the Bible? Does Christ have two completely independent natures? Not related to one another at all? Or does Christ have only one hybrid nature? Council's answer was, and this is the biblical answer, it's neither. Neither of those things. The Bishop of Rome, Leo I, now called Leo the Great, Pope Leo the Great by some, he sent a tome, a book to the council. He wasn't able to attend himself, but he sent this long document to be read at the council in which he argued for what we call today the hypostatic union. Anybody tell me what that is? Hypostasis, or hypostatic refers to the Greek term hypostasis, which is another word for substance or existence. Pope Leo maintained, the Son of God, as a result of the incarnation, has two complete and different substances within him, human and divine, but they are not separate from one another, nor are they mixed. They are united in perfection and purpose. So you see how this is different between those other two views? He does have two different natures, but they are united, not mixed. They are bound up with one another, so it's not like Jesus is like, oh, what does my human side say? What does my God side say? No, it's all together, and yet they are not the same, nor are they mixed. Jesus must be 100% God to be of the same essence as God, but he must be 100% man to be our intercessor and substitute. So these natures cannot be mixed. We can't have him stop being 100% God or stop being 100% human. That would nullify many important things about Jesus. So they're not mixed, but they're not completely separate. There's no struggle of the man side of Jesus versus the God side. <coughs> the two complete natures are totally united. Now, let me read to you the confession of Chalcedon. This is two paragraphs. We then following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, and all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages, of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, there's that term, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, hypostasis, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord, Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Good articulation. Chalcedon represents for us an important reminder about theology from church history. For Chalcedon, even though it stood true on what the Bible teaches, in doing so, 
recognized a limit in the human ability to comprehend God, even to describe him. It's impossible to fully explain the hypostatic union, just as it is impossible to fully explain the Trinity. How can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? That's 200%. That logically doesn't make sense. We can't fully explain it. But we do know that it's true because that's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is true. We can only go so far as the Bible permits. What it says and what is a just inference from what it says. The rest we leave to God as glorious mystery. When we try to unravel some of the divine tensions of the scripture and make it fit well within our reasoning, we only fall into error. That has been the frequent happening in church history. So Calston is an important reminder about theology. But Calcedon would also be important because of how it inadvertently elevated the Bishop of Rome. Because after all, two important Christian centers, two Christian patriarchates, Antioch and Alexandria, they were disputing with one another, but who was it that served as the umpire and triumphed over both? It was Rome. Now, while there was no official acknowledgement of Rome being superior to these other bishoprics, by submitting to Rome's mediation and direction, the other churches gave tacit acknowledgement to Rome as the leader of the churches. At least, that's the way that Leo and other Roman bishops after him interpreted these events. Now, we'll say more about the rise of the papacy later, but this would be an important milestone along the way. So Chalcedon settled the issue about Christ's nature, at least in the West. The East would continue to debate more about Christ's substance and nature, even after this council. And you know what that means? They're going to want more councils, which is what we have. The fifth council. Oh, yeah, there we go. The fifth council, Constantinople II. Yes, I'm sorry. Some councils go back to the same cities as earlier councils. This one is in 553, so kind of moving out of the early church period to early medieval period, or what we might call late antique. This council was essentially a restatement of Chalcedon. Christ has two natures, a hypostatic union. Why do they need to make this reaffirmation? Well, there were mono, monophysites remaining in the East. Monophysite is a term that refers to one nature. So there are some people saying Christ doesn't have two natures, he has one nature, which is the opposite of what the previous council said. The council reaffirmed the diophysite view. So we have monophysite, sorry, I said that wrong the first time. Monophysite versus diophysite. Council reaffirmed the diophysites are correct. Chalcedon was correct. They also condemned something called the three chapters, which was just some early church writings that seemed to teach Nestorianism. So the second council of Constantinople, it just upheld Chalcedon, recondemned those who believed that Christ had only one nature, and those like the Nestorians who believed that those two natures were only loosely connected. Nice. But the Eastern theologians are not done probing the nature of Christ. Because they were soon asking, does the hypostatic union mean that Christ had one will or two wills? All right, one more council on the nature of Christ. Constantinople three. This is in 680. Back in Constantinople more than, two, more than 100 years later, this time pitting the monothelites, one will supporters, versus the diothelites, two will supporters. It's like, wait, didn't we just, didn't we just have this? Kind of. One of the reasons why this council occurred is because emperors around this time were trying to build bridges with those Christians who were still clinging to that old monophysite view. We're saying Christ is one nature. Don't tell me he has two natures. That's unbiblical. Emperors are like, man, how are we going to get those Christians back into the fold? How are we going to get them back united with our empire? Hmm, why don't we have another council? We'll pose a similar question, and we'll suggest that even though Christ had two natures and hypostatic union, we could say that he still has only one energy which is a term left completely vague, and that he has only one will. It's kind of like, we'll, go, we'll throw you guys a bone. He still has two natures, but he's got one energy, one will. So this was kind of a political effort, but this effort at conciliation, it only upset the Orthodox Christian leaders in the empire. They're like, wait, 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 that's not correct. So 
Having stirred up controversy, the emperor decided to call a council in Constantinople in 680 to settle the question, and the council determined that Christ has two energies and two wills, but that, again, they are in complete harmony with each other. They also said specifically that Christ's human will was in submission to Christ's divine will. Now, you're probably wondering, did we really need to have a whole other council about this? You know what? Probably not. And we are definitely getting into white space theology here. I mean, the Bible doesn't talk about an energy in Jesus. How are we even going to decide that question? And even the relationship of his wills is not explicitly stated. It is a little bit ironic to note that despite the Eastern Christians in these early periods continuing, continuing to try and explore the mystery of Christ's nature, which part of Europe ends up embracing theological mystery more, the West or the East? Strangely, it's the East. If you look into Greek Orthodox theology today, you will see that there is a lot of emphasis, even overemphasis, on mystery, on negative theology. Oh, we can't say what God is. We can only say what God is not. Well, there's a place for negative theology. And there's certainly a place for mystery, but it seems to be overdone in the Eastern and the Greek Orthodox Church today which is weird, considering what happened historically. But anyways, this was their decision. Not necessarily wrong. I don't know if, how helpful it was. Are we done having councils? No. One more ecumenical council, but this one kind of doesn't fit with the rest. All the other councils have sought to describe the nature of Christ or the nature of the Trinity. But this last council is about Christian worship. And there we are back to Nicaea. I see it too, in 787, the last ecumenical church council, the last council that can claim that it had all Christians from everywhere represented. And this council is all about religious icons. The question is, is it appropriate to venerate icons as part of Christian worship? Now, the reason why Christians were asking this question, particularly in the East, has to do with historical circumstances. Because by 787, what militaristic religion has emerged in the Middle East? Islam. Due to the weakening of the Eastern Roman Empire for various reasons, historians often call the Eastern Roman Empire the Byzantine Empire, though they never called themselves that, but I'll call them that too. Due to weakening of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, Muslim fighters were able to conquer much land that belonged to the Byzantines. And this development was traumatic for Eastern Christians. Why would God let this happen to his devoted people? Why would he allow us to be defeated again and again? To make matters worse, martyrs' relics and famous icons in various cities, which were said to have miraculous powers, they had not helped the Christians win battles or prevent the Muslims from taking over Christian cities. And Muslims even taunted Christians about these things, calling them polytheists and idol worshippers, whose idols, i.e. relics, had no power against Allah. So the Eastern Christians went through some serious soul-searching. What was the empire's secret sin causing us to be defeated by the Muslims? Some Christians believe that the culprit was devotion to icons. And when I say icon, I'm referring to the paintings, the other artistic depictions of Jesus, the saints, biblical scenes that are meant to be used in worship as aids to worship. Christians believe the culprit was devotion to these icons, and these Christians became iconoclasts. What's iconoclasm referred to? Destruction or destroyer of icons. I wanted to destroy all these icons. These Christians concluded that the statues and paintings of Christ, Mary, and the other saints, the icons which people bowed down to, prayed to, and kissed, these were actually idols. And they needed to be changed, they needed to be removed, they needed to be destroyed. The iconoclasts, for their support, went back to the Old Testament prohibition about making images of God or making images to worship. As Leviticus 26.1 says, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar. You shall not place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord, that is Yahweh your God. So the iconoclasts were claiming that those using icons in worship were in fact worshiping idols and idolaters. 
Other Christians, however, defended icons as legitimate helps in worshiping God. These supporters could be called iconoduals or iconophiles. Uh, dual referring to service, so icon servers, or iconophiles, icon lovers. These maintain that the Old Testament prohibition about making images of God did not apply to Jesus because Jesus was incarnated. After all, does not Colossians 1.15 say that Christ is the image of the invisible God? If God took physical form, they argued, how can it be wrong to depict that physical form and use that depiction as an aid in worship? The Iconoduals also maintained that they were not worshiping the images, only venerating them. And further, this veneration was not really for the images, but for what the images represented. Now, for a time, the iconoclasts were triumphant. Byzantine emperors banned icons from churches, ordered their removal. There was even a church council that formally condemned icons. But when those iconoclast rulers died, other rulers came to power who were iconoduals. And what happened? Well, icons were restored. And right before the Second Council of Nicaea, Icons had again been restored by the Byzantine Empress Irene, who was ruling on behalf of her too young for the throne son. And thus, with icons given official sanction, Iconodule church leaders asked Irene to convene a church council to overturn that previous council's determination that said that icons were bad, which is where we get Nicaea II. Now, the question asked that I, Nicaea II, Nicaea II are icons appropriate in Christian worship? It was a foregone conclusion. They already knew what this council was going to say. And what did they say? Yes, icons are great. Here's part of the council's declaration. As the sacred and life-giving cross is everywhere set up as a symbol, so also should the images of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the holy angels, as well as those of the saints and other pious and holy men be embodied and the manufacture of sacred vessels, tapestries, vestments, etc., and exhibited on the walls of churches, in the homes, and in all conspicuous places, by the roadside and everywhere, to be revered by all who might see them. For the more they are contemplated, the more they move to fervent memory of their prototypes. Therefore, it is proper to accord to them a fervent and reverent adoration. Not, however, the veritable worship which, according to our faith, belongs to the divine being alone. But the honor, according to the image, passes over to its prototype. And whoever adores the image, adores in it the reality of what is there represented. Image worship, then, was not only allowed by the church, but was encouraged. And both the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church have maintained this stance on icons ever since this council, though the Greek Orthodox Church does not allow for statuary. The Western Church does. So, this last, this last council is, of course, tragically an error. This is not biblical. This is not right. Among many issues is the basic fact that, borrowing from Calvin's treatise on relics, there's little to, no difference, little to no difference between adoring an icon and worshiping it. And even if, if, even if such a distinction were to exist, it would be impossible to discern when one crosses the line from adoration into idolatry. Furthermore, was not the iconodule argument the same as those used by pagan worshipers for their idols? Those who bowed down to Zeus and Athena understood similarly that the god was not the statue. But worshiping the statue was how you worshiped the god. After all, the gods dwelt on Mount Olympus. Still, there was something of the god's presence in the statue, something of the power of that god. The gods were even imagined to be able to animate their statues or cause their statues to perform miracles, which ironically is exactly what many Christian icon worshipers claimed. There are countless legends in the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church of icons performing miraculous works or granting visions even today. 
But really, their arguments on behalf of icons ought to be dismissed for the same reason uh, that pagan icons and idols are condemned. It's really the same thing. When you venerate the image, when you bow down to the image, you are essentially a bowing down to a different god. That's expressly forbid by the scriptures. Now, a separate question, can you depict Jesus? Can you depict things from the Bible at all? Does that mean that children's Bibles that depict, you know, Jesus walking around, that that's evil, that's idolatry? Some Christians today do say that. Though, we should note a distinction between using a picture for instruction and using a picture as an aid in worship. That is specifically how these churches were doing that. You're supposed to look at the image and express things outwardly towards it as a way of worshiping God. Anyways, that's a question we could talk about more in another space. But there we have it, the seven ecumenical church councils. Some of them, like the original Nicaea Council, Constantinople I, Chalcedon, these were wonderfully helpful articulations of biblical truth. These are our brothers in the past standing up for what the Bible teaches that should be encouraging to us. Other councils, like Ephesus, Constantinople III, and certainly Nicaea II, they were less helpful. Councils have been helpful to the Christian church throughout history, but sometimes they ended up hurting the church. That's it for the instruction today, but programming note. At this point in the course, we're going to do a little pivot so far, I've been mainly talking about empire-wide forces and movements, but starting next week, after we spend some time talking about biblical canonicity, how did we get a set of Bible books and recognize them as the Bible, I want to have you start meeting individuals. I want you to meet different church fathers from the 1st to the 4th centuries. I want you to sample their writings and also look at some of the issues that are connected with them. Talk about... Uh, for example, Ignatius and the rise of the bishop being the most important person in the church. Or we'll talk about Justin Martyr and what he has to say about how early church services actually were run. What did they look like and what did they do? I think that will be very encouraging and instructive to us. So next week, we're going to start that new effort by talking about the canon, but then also talking about the apostolic fathers, the ones who were discipled even by the apostles, so the first group of church fathers after the Bible ends. So we'll see them in the first and second centuries. That's it for today. Let's... Oh, Ignatius? What a guy, Ignatius. He, he's a really interesting one. <laughs> um, I'll save the stories for next time. But let's close in prayer. Lord, your truth is wonderful and mighty. Lord, you are mysterious. You are a God who cannot be completely fathomed by our minds because you are holy, you are special, you are different, you are set apart. Lord, forgive us for where we insist in conceiving of you, thinking about you, even producing some sort of physical object of you that fits with our own thinking. We make you into our image rather than accepting what you've revealed about yourself. But thank you, Lord, that fundamentally that is not what we do anymore. You have opened our eyes so that we would be freed from idols, that we would be freed from thinking about you just according to our own feelings, our own thoughts, but rather, Lord, trusting in what you say about yourself and actually coming to love it, seeing that there is no God like you who is glorious and set apart like you are, who is like the Lord Jesus, 100% God and 100% man. What can be compared to the Trinity? One God, three persons. What great mysteries what glorious realities and instructive even for how we think about what you've made us for. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Lord, help us to worship you today for the Trinity, 
for the amazing hypostatic uh, union in Christ, even as we go about the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.